0: And welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. I'm Ellie Cawthorne. This year marks the 50th anniversary of the Wolfson History Prize, which has been awarded to standout history books since 1972. And as part of the celebrations, we've teamed up with the Wolfson Foundation to bring you some fascinating panel discussions on history's biggest topics. Today's episode focuses on the Holocaust, and on our panel are three historians who've all had connections with the prize over the years. Professor Richard J. Evans won the prize in 1989 for Death in Hamburg, Society and Politics in the Cholera Years, and he now serves as one of the prize's judges. Professor Rebecca Clifford was shortlisted for the prize in 2021 for her book Survivors, Children's Lives After the Holocaust. And Professor Mary Fulbrook won the prize in 2019 for reckonings, for reckonings, Legacies of Nazi Persecution and the Quest for Justice. The three historians were joined in conversation by Rob Attar.
2: I wonder if we could begin with each of you briefly describing your own experiences of writing and researching the Holocaust, and perhaps beginning with Mary.
3: I never in my life didn't know that the Holocaust had happened, even though the word itself didn't come into general currency until well into my adulthood. In terms of researching it, I think I avoided it for a long time. I did a lot of other aspects of German history and sort of circled round and round before I finally thought I've got to get to the heart of the matter. And I guess that was in part because of discovering disturbing aspects of the past life of people who are well known to me in Germany and particularly discovering that the husband of my mother's closest school friend had been quite a significant Nazi administering an area in annexed eastern upper Silesia part of Poland that was annexed just north of Auschwitz and once I got into that I was just existentially challenged and had to explore further and deeper.
2: And actually Mary that's really interesting what you were saying about the word holocaust wasn't used at first so how did people describe the Nazi genocide prior to holocaust?
3: Many many different terms were in use. The Jewish catastrophe was widespread in uh, among Jewish survivor circles. I think that germans German historians certainly by and large tended to try and avoid it as best they could. I remember reading textbooks in the late 1970s where you got all of three sentences on terrible deeds were committed far away in the forests of the east about which Germans knew nothing but which is forever cast a shadow of shame over our history kind of thing i quote not verbatim obviously but that was literally what i found in one of the late 1970s textbooks that just avoided it entirely um so i think it was really i mean the term holocaust was used with a small h from the the later 1950s onwards but came in with a big h after the tv mini series of 78 79 when it became very much more widespread in the 1980s
2: and Richard, how about you? What's what's
4: your experience been of writing about the Holocaust? Well, I came to it in a very roundabout way. Uh, when I grew up uh, on the eastern edges of London, so I was just struck as a child by the bomb sites, the missing houses in the rows of terraces, and uh, wanted to know why this happened. And and well, I got to Oxford and studied history there and German history was a very exciting stage in the, the late 60s and early 70s because it was just opening up. The archives had been opened up. German historians were starting to grapple with it. Uh, and so I got into it. And initially, we, my generation tended to write about the long-term origins of Nazism. Was there anything about the 19th century or the early 20th century that made it likely or, or explained the uh, triumph of the Nazis and their their regime, the so-called Third Reich, and uh, I got involved. Uh, then, of course, I I did a, um, a study of violence, state violence, capital punishment in Germany over a very long period, including the Nazis, and that led me to become involved in a uh, a famous libel trial, which is a defamation action brought by the writer David Irving against an American historian Deborah Lipstadt, who had. Accused him of holocaust denial and a falsification of history, and I was engaged as an expert witness. And when the lawyers asked me, was there a good history of Nazi Germany they could look uh, they could look look up, they could get hold of. I had to say no. Uh, there wasn't really. they were out of date or they weren't very good. And so as is the way of things with us historians, I decided to write one myself, and it kind of grew and grew uh, until it became three volumes, the last of which Deals with the what used to be called, as Mary said before, the 1990s. Really, not the Holocaust, but the Final Solution, the, the Nazi term "Final Solution" of the Jewish problem in Europe, which, of course, is a problem invented entirely by them, or the Nazi extermination of the Jews. There are various terms used for it, and and that is so. I'm a historian of Germany and and the wider Europe, and uh, I wrote about really dealing with the question of why did the Nazis launch on this campaign to exterminate the Jewish population of Europe. So that's how I came into it.
2: And then what about you, Rebecca? What's your experience been?
5: Well, although my background's quite different from Richard and Mary's, um, uh, what Mary said really struck me. So um, Mary and Richard are, are Germanists. I'm not. I actually came um, out of uh, East Asian history and tried for a very long time to not study the Holocaust. And uh, I don't know if I'm uh, unique um, on this panel in having a family background of, you know, my both my mother and my grandmother are are Holocaust survivors, Mary saying no. Um, but it, for that reason, I tried very hard to not study the Holocaust. And actually, as I, I said, I, I uh, started out in Japanese history, but I was always drawn to this question of the memory of the Second World War. And when I came to do my doctoral studies at Oxford, I had a completely different idea in mind, kind of study of reprisal killings. And in my first meeting with my doctoral supervisors, um, Robert Gilday at Oxford, he said, I like the idea of the memory side of this, but what about looking at the Holocaust? And I thought, no, it's too raw. It's too close. I can't go there. I shouldn't go there. And I went there. And it actually took me a long time in my career. And I had to be well settled in my career before I felt that I could walk closer and closer to the space that actually is very fundamentally at the heart of my own identity. And the big leap for me was this last book that I wrote, which is about child Holocaust survivors, because my mother is a child Holocaust survivor. The book is in no way about my mother and is also in every way about my mother. Uh, So it, it took me a long time to have the confidence to come to this. And now I know I can't actually go anywhere else. This is the place I was meant to be.
2: How additionally challenging is it to write about a period of history that you have a personal involvement in? I mean, are you able to separate your family story from what you're writing about, or or has it just become really entwined?
5: I can't separate them. I, I was very, very... Um, inspired actually by um a, a fabulous Germanist at Oxford, Jane Kaplan, who once said in a graduate, I was in so a graduate seminar, and she said, why are we always trying to pretend as historians that we don't write about things that are subjectively important to us? Why don't we just embrace that? And I thought, oh yes, I needed to hear that to feel that I was allowed to do this. But in fact, of course, it's it's I think it's quite honest to admit. This is at the heart of who I am. And and the two things are not, uh, I cannot disentangle them. Although I don't write in any active way about my family. I do hope to one day, though.
2: And one question I'd quite like to clarify fairly early on in, in this discussion is, when we're talking about the Holocaust, are we specifically talking about the mass murder of six million Jews? Or do we need to also bring in some of the other victims
4: of Nazi persecution. I know there's quite a lot of debate around this question, isn't there? I've tended to avoid using the term Holocaust as far as I can. Uh, You won't find it once in my three volumes and 2,000 pages on uh, Nazi Germany. And I took my cue there from Walter Lecoeur, who I knew, who was one of the earliest historians. He wrote about, uh, wrote about the Nazi extermination of the Jews. Uh, his book, for example, The Terrible Secret, is one of the very first to deal with how the news spread from Europe across to America and the people that tried to make Western leaders uh, aware of what was going on in Europe in the 1940s. Um, and he says a Holocaust means a burnt offering or a holy burnt sacrifice. And I can't see that it's a sacrifice or a burnt offering to anybody or, or anything at all. There's also a kind of vagueness about it, and it's just, you raised in your, in your introductory question, what actually are we talking about? So as far as I'm concerned, it is about the Nazi extermination of the Jews. And that is because, uh, although again, as you said, there's a lot of debate about this, that is essentially different from all other Nazi genocides. And the Nazis had a plan called the, the General Plan for the East, official policy from 1942 which involved the deliberate killing over a period of up to 30 years of up to 45 million so-called Slavs, the Russians, Belarusians, Ukrainians, Czechs and so on. But that was in order to clear them out of the way because the Nazis thought they were subhumans and well that was genocide but it was different as far as Jews were concerned. The Nazis considered Jews by their heredity by their very essence, to be involved in a worldwide, not necessarily conscious, but a worldwide conspiracy to destroy Germany and the Germans and destroy what they thought of as European civilization. They were, as Goebbels, the Nazi propaganda minister, called them the Weltfeind, the world enemy, one of those uh, rather bitter Jewish jokes that you find in the Warsaw Ghetto where uh, an old Jew gets onto a tram and there's his old friend reading a Nazi newspaper in 1942, and um, he says, "What well, are you reading a Nazi newspaper from?" I mean, you, you know, you're Jewish. This, this is the Nazi paper. And his friend says, "Well, just once in a, every few weeks, I buy it because I want to he- read how I'm part of a, dom- a dominant elite in, in the world. We're running everything. We're enormously powerful." that 's the Nazi idea of the Jews, this hugely powerful global force, and that 's quite different from uh, the others. So what they wanted to do is to exterminate every last Jew, men, women, and children, as quickly as possible. Uh, they weren 't going to take thirty years over it; they wanted to do it straight away and Himmler, who is sort of ran the overall programme of killing, actually went around, went to Finland to try and get the Finnish government to give up its Jews. Although there are there's a tiny, tiny number that, uh, there, so it's the completeness of it as well.
3: I think I'd pick up on that, though, if I may, and also pick up on Rebecca's earlier point about subjective connections with this past and and how it bites you, if you like, in your inner being. Just in answer to Rebecca's point, my mother was a refugee from Nazi Germany, so this is why I grew up so aware of what had been going on in Nazi Germany. And I think I... I agree with Richard on the points he's made about the uniqueness of the persecution of the Jews, which has sometimes been compared to the Sinti and Roma, but their distinctive differences as well. But what strikes me reading through this stuff and immersing myself in the material is the extraordinary... um, persecution of others who've remained marginalized and the long-term impact of that marginalization and persecution. And so I think when we're looking at this period, we have to look at persecution in a much broader sense and not narrow it only to the extraordinary and and truly, as Richard underlined, unique determination to exterminate all Jews everywhere in the German sphere of influence. Um, But, I mean, for example, gay men who were marginalised, excluded, persecuted, persecuted, Several thousands of whom died while incarcerated in concentration camps is not the same scale, it's not the same type of persecution. The killing of Sinti and Roma, again, it's it's different in certain key respects, but this extraordinary inhumanity, this determination to create some kind of pure master race dominating Europe, and in due course, presumably, had they gone on uh, the world, I mean, to take. Hitler's own views of it. Um, That I think we have to look at as a totality. So I prefer when I'm writing to talk about Nazi persecution and talk about victims of persecution, who included many people who didn't, for one reason or another, Um, categorized themselves as Jewish or indeed categorized themselves as whatever category they were being put into, asocials and so on. And one of the things I've been trying to do is understand the ways in which Germans themselves became involved in processes of social exclusion that allowed others to be stigmatized and persecuted, whatever their self-identification. And I think that's a complicating aspect of the history and it has to be written into it. We can't simply see it as a, a simple um, Germans against Jews because Jews were Germans. You know, my mother was German, other, others were Germans and whether they had a Jewish family heritage in the 19th century or not was neither here nor there for many Germans. So I I, I think it's just much more complicated And I think we have to be precise, as Richard has been, in pointing out the distinctive characteristics of the persecution of so-called Jews. But remember also that many of those persecuted as Jews were Christians and were Germans and didn't see themselves as different, and they were made to be excluded.
4: Yeah, I wouldn't quarrel with that, uh, Mary. I think it's an essential part of the context of uh, the, the wider aspects of Nazi genocide and persecution. Uh, and we have to look at those. We can't leave the other the other uh, persecutions out. But um, on the other hand, I've been very struck when reading, I went to descriptions and, and testimonies about the, the Nazi persecution of the Jews. There's an extra edge of sadism about it that you don't find in the persecution of other other groups. And I think we have to remember that as well. I would absolutely agree with you on that. Um, it's
3: just that I would like to point out the distinction between self-identification as Jewish and Nazi stigmatization as a Jew, and the two don't necessarily overlap.
4: Absolutely. If I can just add, add to that, in, in the, the, the great diaries of Victor Klemperer, who was a Jewish professor who survived through the Nazi period because his wife was not Jewish, Uh, And stood by him. But he says when the persecution begins in the 1930s, I am not going to be told by the Nazis that I am not German. Uh, And he stood up for his German identity as a form of of, uh, resistance, in a sense.
5: If I can jump in and, and just go back to Rob's original question, which is, you know when we as historians use this term or as as Richard says, I don't use the term Holocaust, what do we mean by it? Now, I do use the term. I use it in my writing and in my teaching, and I do specifically mean the persecution of Jews when I use it. but I'm very, very much in agreement with Mary that if we use that term in a way that it then drives us away from researching into the persecution of other groups who also suffered and the degree is different, and the nature is different. But if it takes us away from the studies, then we've done something wrong, I think. So when I use it, yes, I do mean something quite specific. But do I hope that we continue to do historical research on all the groups that were persecuted in this time. Absolutely. And I think in many ways um, there are still many groups who suffered enormously with ongoing repercussions for decades and entire lives
4: whose experience has been really quite dreadfully neglected. Absolutely. Homosexuals is one, gay men and and indeed women, um, is one major group that's not had a proper academic study
2: now, Richard, in in your first answer, you referred to the, the Irving trial, a very very famous trial from about 20 years ago. I mean, Holocaust denial seems to be on the rise at the moment, particularly through the internet and social media. What, what do you three think, as historians, you can do to help combat this?
4: It's very difficult dealing with social media. I mean, we publish books, there are websites, there uh, is, is an enormous amount of material about the Holocaust out there to be consulted but trying to cope with it on social media and on the internet is really quite, quite difficult. As it happens UNESCO, the United Nations Educational Social and Cultural Organization has just released a major report on how to deal with anti-semitism on, the, uh, on social media and it is working. UNESCO is working with social media providers, with Twitter, with Facebook Uh, and with others to try and reduce uh, the quantity of of hate speech of anti-Semitism in particular, and that includes Holocaust denial uh, on the internet. So some progress is being made, but there are some internet providers who are not cooperating. Um, I'm not sure historians can do very much apart from uh, writing, engaging in, discussions like this and podcasts on online and broadcasting all of those rather traditional ways of um, of communicating
5: I do have thoughts about this because my my first book was about Holocaust commemorations official Holocaust commemorations and how they came to be uh, in Europe in the Western Europe in the 1990s and I think if we if we sort of look at this period from the 1990s onwards, we see a lot of Holocaust commemoration coming into play in Western European countries. We see a lot of Holocaust education. And we certainly have now whole generations who have had by law to study the Holocaust in school. So all this has come in at the same time as there has been quite a dramatic increase in anti-Semitism and Holocaust denial. So these sort of um, commemorative efforts obviously they themselves do not, do not stop anti-Semitism. They do not stop Holocaust denial. And so I don't think that can ever be our goal as historians. Instead, I think we have to know that through those kinds of um, efforts, there are, there are many people in many walks of life who will stand up to anti-Semitism and we have to reach those people. And so in our writing, I mean, this is the wonderful thing about the Wilson prize. Um, it rewards historical literature that reaches the widest possible audience. I think this needs to be our goal as historians to reach not just other historians, but uh, but you know, intelligent people in every walk of life to arm them, to respond to this. That is something we can do, absolutely.
3: I think there's a really interesting point that Rebecca's raising here. And it's actually a bit more complex than that, because one of the things that I think is really potentially even more dangerous than denial, which you can usually see as freaks on the far right and, and, you know, you can discount in some respects. What I see as more disturbing is what I would call Holocaust distortion, which is telling the story in a way that distorts it subtly, often in the interests of particular nationalist narratives. And there, I think, the commemorative efforts don't necessarily help. Because you find, for example, um, in Poland, in Latvia, in Lithuania, to some extent in Hungary, there are new national narratives which like to see national heroes, myths of resistance and heroism and so on, and the nasty evil Germans, and find it very difficult to cope with issues of local complicity and collaboration. Uh, This is widespread. I mean, it, it just is the case That in Western Europe, questions of complicity, for example, the French myth of resistance, began to be punctured in the 1970s, and Polish history has only really um, started to address those issues from the late 1990s onwards. But it, I think one of the problems with memorialization is that it tends to send out very simple messages. You know, you too can stand up against anti Semitism. Um, The Yad Vashem category of the righteous among the nations, which is a wonderful, laudable category to reward and and name people who selflessly tried to help Jews, that's fine, but it doesn't deal with the wider issues of the circumstances in which vast numbers of people became complicit, were unable to offer help or rescue. It it simplifies a very complex set of grey areas. And so I think... Memorialization to some extent fosters the same kind of simple narratives of villains, victims and heroes that the nationalist holocaust is... It, it's not distortion, obviously it's not distortion in the same way, but it it doesn't make the history complex enough. And I think as historians we have to find a way of exploring and then presenting simply and in an accessible way the greater complexities of the historical realities. So it, it's the um, difficulties in dealing with past complicity that I think are one of the biggest challenges at the moment, which lead to quite distorted narratives.
2: Do you think that that happens in Britain as well? I mean, I realise Britain wasn't a direct participant in the Holocaust, but in Britain, do we sometimes get a simplified version of the Holocaust and anti-Semitism in this period?
5: This came up actually recently in a Ph.D. viva, a very fine Ph.D. on Holocaust education in this country. And, um, of course, Britain is is possibly the it's certainly one of and possibly the only country where it is mandated by law that students must at some point study the Holocaust. But in a sense, what came up in the discussion in, in this viva was that um, there is a way in which it's much easier to look at the Holocaust in Britain, because this issue of national complicity is different in this case, and indeed is quite easily avoidable in some senses. And still, just as Mary was saying and was sort of the, the the result of the students' research was the discovery that students, by the time they finish um, secondary school, don't have a very complex vision of the Holocaust. They have quite a simplified one, often also quite a sort of moralistic one, one that paints a universalist picture of the Holocaust as a sort of moral lesson. So so we were discussing how that might change and indeed, you know, what would be ideal, uh, given that, you, you know, students can never go into that much depth in, on any one historical topic in secondary school. And I got asked, you know, what do you think about, what would you like to see as the ideal here? And I said, actually, I'd like to see students in secondary school doing less of the Holocaust and more on the history of British colonialism because they come to us in university, they don't know anything about British colonialism, but it's very, very hard to look at that one because it raises these issues of complicity. Quite different from students who are studying the Holocaust in the French case, for example, where they have to approach a complex history in which there was a, a great deal of, of French involvement in the, um, carrying out the persecution against French Jews. So I think this question of how you confront and deal with national and regional complicity is a very challenging one. Um, and some countries have dipped deep into it and had a very difficult journey doing so, and, and others haven't had to do so or have walked away from that discussion. It is different in the British case because our involvement was different.
4: Well, in the the British case, it's worse than that because the current Conservative government is pushing very, very hard to have a a Holocaust, a national Holocaust memorial and what they call a study centre, Located in Victoria Tower Gardens, which is right next to Parliament, and this is begun by David Cameron, has very widespread support. But if you read the justifications for putting it there, which would effectively destroy one of the one of the best green spaces in the middle of of London, they are essentially, it's next to Parliament. Because we had parliamentary democracy, and that stopped us being involved in the holocaust it's a kind of subtle indirect um, way of saying we're not responsible we don't have anything to do with it and of course it, that itself is a distortion of the history of uh, for example, the British government's refusal to accept Jewish immigrants in the in the uh, uh, in the 1930s or only in very very small numbers and this uh, proposal has been rejected by the courts, a case fought by a large number of bodies, uh, including the Royal Parks. But the government is now proposing to introduce a law, a piece of legislation which will repeal the law of, of over a century ago that, that makes it impossible to put the memorial there. So I think it's an ongoing situation, and I'm very concerned about the message that that will be sending if it goes up.
3: Yeah, I find myself in a slightly awkward position here. I'm actually a member of the Academic Advisory Committee to the UK Holocaust Memorial Foundation. And the Academic Advisory Committee has been trying its hardest to make sure that a complex story will be told in the exhibition and that the faults of the British government and the resistance of many members of Parliament and members of the public to helping refugees is clearly explained and outlined and that we present the complexity of the situation and the... um, undercut the nationalist myths that I think Richard was alluding to in the public opposition to this. I don't myself necessarily feel committed to that particular site for it. I do think, however, the exhibition itself, if it goes ahead and we never know how the Professionals who construct the exhibition will use the historical research and the historical advice that we've been trying to make sure is inputted, if you like. But I hope that if it does go ahead in the way that our discussions have been going, it will precisely challenge some of the myths that the government like might like to sustain. So I hope that if it is realised, and in my position as a member of that committee, I have to support its realisation, um, I hope that if it's realised in the form that we've been discussing, it will actually prove to be something very different from the picture that Richard Richard painted and that many people rightly fear. Um, On the wider question of what can historians do to combat Holocaust distortion and to put across in an accessible way things which are very complicated... I and my team at UCL in a project sponsored by the AHRC and the Pears Foundation, we've put together a web-based um, exhibition with additional materials to which will be used in schools. We're currently in discussion with the UCL Institute of Education about um, ways in which we can help teachers to use this as a resource in the classroom, which in the time that is given to the Holocaust in British schools might help students to look at questions of complicity and the difficulties in addressing this past in a less simple but still readily understandable way that gets away from the Simplistic view that the Holocaust was all about the Germans and was all about the nasty Hitler and his henchmen at the top and was all about German policy making. And we'll get over some of the older debates that I think have run their course among historians but still live and flourish in A level textbooks and A level questions. Still to come on the
5: History Extra podcast. Parents who survived the Holocaust, we see them in 1945, 46, 47, destitute, often homeless, without any sort of social network to to help them get back on their feet, traumatised, not in a very good
6: position to be a good parent. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down.
1: Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
2: So the Walson History Prize has been going for 50 years now and all three of you have spent a number of years researching the Holocaust. How, how do you think Holocaust studies has changed over the decades? I think for a very long time, there was very little research on
5: the Holocaust, and this really only started to dramatically shift in the late 1970s. And then for a long time, um, there you know, in, in most of the gen- most of the research generated, we might now call it perpetrator studies, and it was very sort of. Germany-focused and it was perpetrator-focused and it uh, used official Nazi documents as the kind of main primary sources. And, and then I think around the time that I was an undergraduate in the 1990s, there was real branching out into more and more regional studies, uh, which were really very interesting because they changed the, the you know way we looked at complicity and they changed the nature of who we thought of as a persecutor. But they didn't change the fact that it was still sort of perpetrator-focused studies. The shift towards working on victims and survivors has come really relatively recently, which I think is very interesting. I also think there's very good historical reasons, kind of contextual reasons for that. Um, But it's only really been since the shift to the turn of the last century that historians have started looking in earnest at survivors and at, at victims, and that's certainly where I place myself, and I think that's opened up room for some really asking some really interesting, relatively novel questions, because when you shift to looking at victims and survivors especially, then you are able to look at aftermaths in a different way. So it's also opened up space for looking beyond the Holocaust to lives afterwards. And in fact, I was in a really interesting uh, discussion, a group discussion at the Wiener Library not that long ago, where we raised the question of where does the Holocaust end? And had a quite nice debate about that. Um, And so certainly that's where I place myself in, you might call it aftermath studies, I suppose, uh, thinking more and more about, okay, for those who make it through, for those who have survived, what happens next? Um, and I think that's just one interesting direction that research has gone in in recent years. And certainly that's 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 allowed me to step into this field in a new way. But I do think it's quite interesting and telling in many ways that it took us as historians so very long to come around to using survivor accounts, to looking at at victims, to getting away from perpetrator accounts, I suppose.
3: But there was a very good reason for that, wasn't there? I think if you look at Raoul Hilberg, who was one of the real pioneers of Holocaust research, um, he he had this fundamental determination to go with the documents. He always stressed and emphasized the documents because he wanted to hoist the Nazis on their own petard, if I can use that. Cliché. And people would say, well, survivors would say that. You can't trust their accounts. You know, it's not believable. But these are the documents. This is what the Nazis themselves said and did. And so I think Hilberg had a, a, a very strong survivor-focused determination to use Nazi perpetrator documents in order to condemn them. And the other thing is, I think Jewish survivors already were writing their accounts in the late 1940s, 1950s, but they were sort of siloed off as Jewish history, which isn't really German history. And there was this huge distinction between what was seen as Jewish history and what was seen as German history. And I think that has only really begun to come together with the internationalization of historiography more and more that we're beginning to bring these strands together. I also think that there's something else interesting, which is for a while when survivors began not merely to speak but to be listened to by a later generation, I think they always spoke but they didn't receive such um audiences in the early post-war years and decades as they did from the late 1970s onwards and then their accounts began to be elicited more actively in the 1980s and 90s with the building of archives and so on. I think it was a slightly Positivist moment where people felt, ah, oh, we've got authentic access to the past as it really was. And this sort of hugely overblown fear what will we do when the survivors die? And I think increasingly memory studies has taken over to say actually what the survivors are saying reflects how they want to reframe their past and what they're willing to talk about and how they're willing to frame it in a later context which is very very interesting because there's certain things which people might have been ashamed of at the time and with cultural changes they're no longer ashamed to talk about or things that they just see differently but i think all the survivor um later survivor accounts have to be treated very carefully in terms of the context in which the account is given and the nature of the interview, the, the interview setting and so on. So I don't think we can see this as a direct route to the past. I think as you're, you're right, Rebecca, it's aftermath studies in a sense, um, that aspect of it. But the the question of how to write an integrated history, though, which Saul Friedlander famously um demanded is interesting, putting together the perpetrator and the victim perspectives. And I think the new challenge there is to incorporate also the wider perspectives others' in surrounding societies who became collaborators, became complicit, became rescuers, variously related to the violence that was raging all around them without having been directly involved initially as either a perpetrator or a direct target of persecution. And that, I think, is is where historiography needs to go now.
4: Um, yes, I mean I think that that there's been a major change in what, what we've been calling perpetrator studies because in the 1990s, to begin with, with the fall of the Soviet Union, the opening up of archives in Eastern Europe, which had been closed, more, pretty much closed before that, a huge, massive new material became available. Uh, and that was not only uh, major documents like the full diaries of Joseph Goebbels and, uh, and many other p- documents from the center, but also what was happening on the ground in the in the East. And there are a number of major studies in in the nineties and and uh, afterwards of the um, persecution and extermination of the Jews in Poland and in Belarus and uh, in, in various other parts of Eastern Europe. And that, of course, pointed out the problem. Or the, the question of local collaboration, how it was achieved, what was done, and so on, uh, and the history of anti-Semitism in, in many of these countries. Uh, and I think the other thing that happened in the 90s was with the final passing of from the scene of the generation of professionals, of teachers, of, of army officers, of planners, uh, statisticians, doctors uh, and many others who had themselves in their younger days been involved in the crimes of Nazism, that opened up a whole new field. And we now think of perpetrators in in a much, much wider sense than we did of just black uniformed SS running the concentration camps. Uh, And that was one of the major changes of the the 1990s, I think. The the circle uh, of people whom we understand uh, as having carried out the Holocaust has become enormously larger, and as Mary says, that then rather complicates the the question because you can't point up to them, point to them as being uh, ideological fanatics. There are other reasons why they did these things.
5: If I can just jump in on the back of what Richard said, I think we've seen both an expansion of how we look at, you know, who is a perpetrator, but we've equally seen an expansion of how we look at who is a victim and a survivor. We, uh, it's the kind of backbone of my recent study of child survivors is is the story of how they come to feel that they can call themselves survivors. And so as we expand these terms, we expand what we can do as historians as well. And we, in a way, are forced to take new approaches, as Mary was saying, you know, when we engage with uh, oral history, then we open up space for exploring memory, for example, in a very different way. Um, And there are obviously both problems with that and really very thrilling aspects of that. Um, I come at all of this as a oral historian and a memory studies historian. And I think that's, for me personally, that's the most exciting aspect is, is wrangling with the holes in memory, both at the individual and at the collective level.
2: So we've talked quite a lot in, in this uh, last question about survivors and survivor testimonies. And obviously we're getting to the point where Holocaust survivors are sadly reducing in number and, you know, the next sort of quarter of a century there may be none left. How significant a moment will it be when this passes from eyewitness history to something that we only have documents for?
4: Well, uh, less significant than is, is widely thought, I think. Uh, in the in the trial uh, that I was involved in as an expert witness, well, over 20 years ago now, a libel action brought by David Irving, against Deborah Lipstadt over her accusations that he was a Holocaust denier and falsifier of history, an a, a, a action that she won and he lost. Deborah Lipstadt was very concerned uh, about what was going to happen after the survivor generation passed away and were no longer able to come in front of the, um, the cameras or, or go into schools or go on television and tell their experiences. Uh, But I thought that one of the things the trial showed was that you can actually depend on historians to tell these stories, um, that that we can research the documents, we can examine and use testimonies, both from perpetrators and from victims and from others. Uh, We can use the tools of history to explore, uh, establish and explain uh, 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 you're not. you are not dependent on survivors, and of course, in any case, there is a, uh, a, an enormous mass of recorded testimony by survivors. Steven Spielberg, the movie producer and director, for example, is, has had a long, long-term project of recording as many surviving survivor testimonies uh, uh, as he as he can. And although he slots them all into a kind of preconceived format, it's still, I think, it's an enormously valuable. Exercise.
3: I think we have to remember there's a difference between the worm's eye view and the bird's eye view. And one survivor will have dramatic, authentic, vivid memories of certain incidents in their life, but it will be just that worm's eye view and that particular experience as filtered through later memory, whereas what historians are trying to do is present a much more composite bird's eye view picture using many, many such sources of which, as Richard was saying, many have been recorded, many have been written. There There's an enormous wealth of material of both survivor Testimony and perpetrator documents and by, bystander eyewitness accounts that historians can use. I think what we'll lose is that sense of authenticity, that sense of this really happened, this happened to a person who I can see before me. And i've seen this in what to me seemed quite excruciatingly embarrassing occasions, like there was one I remember attending where a survivor was accompanied by her daughter, and her daughter spoke her story for her, and then turned round and said, "Wasn't it so, mother?" you know and mother nodded and mumbled a little bit vaguely, and I felt embarrassed about that because I felt what the it was mainly high school students in the audience, what they were getting was the sense this really happened to a real person and this is the living proof that somebody suffered and survived. But it's not actually telling you the history. It's giving you um a subjective emotional connection to a past almost like I've touched the hem of the royal robe when the king passes in medieval Britain. You know, it it's um a magical sense of emotional connection, but it's not history. And I think that there's another way in which that subjective emotional connection lives on, which is through the second generation, the third generation, particularly increasingly third generation grandchildren of both survivors and perpetrators are beginning to explore what did this mean for the family? What did this mean for my parents? How has it affected me and my upbringing and so on? That's a different kind of long-term reverberation of this past. But again, it's not history; it's the way It's affected us and has constructed us as human beings in the later present. And I think that's fundamentally important. But the giving of survivor accounts is not integral to the writing of good history of that past, I think. And that's where I think the current debates are sometimes a little off key. If I can pick up on
5: something that Mary said, I think we've come to a space. And of course, Rob, you're absolutely right that there are very, very few, increasingly few survivors left. And almost those, almost all of those who still speak about their experiences are child survivors. So um, this is a particularly meaningful question for me as I write about child survivors. But it, one thing that really came up um, when I did my own interviews with, with child survivors for my last book was how far, you know, for such a long time, they wanted to feel that they could tell their stories. And then the the moment sort of arrived in the past two decades, they they have been able to tell their stories. And that, that has in many senses been very wonderful. But as Mary's suggested already, that we, our approach, our thinking about survivors has come to a place where we really tend to put them on a pedestal in a way that often makes them uncomfortable. And indeed, um, I think that's kind of elevating and honoring of their story that then makes it very hard for them to tell certain aspects of what happened to them. I noticed this very much in comparing uh, interviews I had done myself in 2014, 2015, with older interviews with the same person, that sometimes humiliating, embarrassing, particularly excruciating elements of the past could be spoken about in 1979 or 1982 because the story wasn't um it hadn't sort of taken on its form yet it was very there was a lot of kind of a broken aspect to it and so these things would come out but now here we are and you know I did a lot of the interviews in 20, 2015 the story had been told many many times there's a kind of expectation on the part of the audience that this will be a certain type of story and that means, some of this really painful stuff cannot be said in that context so i think as we lose the last direct eyewitnesses to the holocaust we will lose and gain at the same time as richard said there is an enormous existing collection of first hand survivor oral history and memoir material and some of it um, you know it's been It's been recorded over a very long period of time. It changes over time in historical context as the world around survivors changes. We can dip back into that now, taking that bird's eye view, taking a critical view that is sometimes hard when you've got the living person in front of you, digging around in the past to see what could be said in 1980 that could not be said in 2022 and vice versa and putting that all together. I think actually, in some ways, might serve to give us a richer picture, certainly, both of the individual life and of the collective experience.
2: Now, in the last uh, 20, 30 years, there have been a huge number of films, TV series and popular um, fiction and nonfiction books about the Holocaust. How helpful or unhelpful do you think these are for the public understanding of the Holocaust?
3: It's really depressing for professional historians to realise that most people's understanding of history is based on um, film and TV series rather than historians' books. Some of them are extremely bad and very distorting. I think anything that precipitates interest that is then followed up is a good thing. I quite worry about the ways in which fiction writers, novelists, filmmakers can present something which is so easy to imagine and historians tend not to think very hard about how they write and how they portray the past in a way that's accessible to imagine as well as to understand and explain and I think their historians really have to think hard about how they write history. There are some terrible accounts, I have to say, yeah, um, which are just so wrong and so bad that it it's um, awful. And there are some other ones which are challenging and interesting and useful and important. And as long as they're properly discussed and thought about uh, rather than simply swallowed whole. I agree that there's a very wide
5: range of representations. And in some ways I've tended to avoid them, I think. Um, so sometimes people will say, "Oh, haven't you seen this film about the Holocaust?" And I'll say, "No, actually, I don't like to watch films about the Holocaust. Believe it or not." But I think, of course, that you know, cultural objects, cultural products, will reflect the moment of their creation and the assumptions of that moment. And. I think one of our challenges as historians is to dig into those assumptions. So I'll give you an example from my own research. I was thinking a lot about one of the few Holocaust films I have watched is um, La Vita è Bella, Life is Beautiful. And if you've seen the film, you will probably remember this moment at the end. I don't want to give it away for any listeners who haven't seen it, but there is a a little boy. Um uh, he he survives the concentration camp and he manages to get out and he finds his mother, this kind of walking on the road. He finds his mother, and there's this joyous reunion between mother and son, where they sort of say, We won, you know, we won by surviving. Um and I think that reflects all our assumptions about the nature of family life. And one of the things that kind of challenges to my own assumptions, I have to say, in in working on, on child survivors was allowing myself to consider the fact that this was not true for the many, many child survivors who also had a surviving parent. One of the things that really, really shocked me in doing my own research was the discovery that children who survived the Holocaust, who ended up spending the rest of their childhoods in an orphanage, often felt they had had a better experience than children returned to a surviving parent. Now, actually, it's not that hard to understand why that would be the case, because if we look at parents who survived the Holocaust, we see them in 1945, 46, 47, destitute, often homeless, without any sort of social network to to help them get back on their feet, traumatized, not in a very good position to be a good parent. And we can fully understand then why they might have felt that their children would be better off in an orphanage. And indeed, we see many, many children in orphanages in that period who had a surviving parent who didn't feel capable of looking after them. But this is challenging to accept because we, in our 21st century position, have a certain perspective on the family that um, we see that reflected in these cultural documents. And so then I think as historians, we have to say, right, Can we interrogate this? Can we let go of our own assumptions about this? I have little children. I have all sorts of assumptions about the the power and beauty of the family. Can I set that aside and look at the reality of what it was like for families in 1946, for example? Um, So I think they they can be very nice jumping off points, um, many of these sort of cultural products like films, to interrogate our own assumptions. That's not to say that they're aren't ones that are that do indeed deeply kind of challenge these assumptions, of course. There's a huge, huge range of them.
4: All of this is, a, uh, yes, another reason why historians need to write as far as we can for a wider public uh, and not just uh, stick to learned journals and university presses. Uh, and I, it's becoming more important, uh, particularly because research funding bodies are now demanding that we publish on open access that is to say, in a way that nobody has to pay for access to our, our our writing. We don't get the services of a commercial publisher if we want to have government funding for, for research. And I think that's going to damage the younger generation of, of, of historical researchers who will simply be writing academic work for other academics.
2: There have, of course, been many books written on the Holocaust, but What books do you think still need to be written? What subjects haven't yet been properly covered?
3: We always think our next book is the one that hasn't yet been written and needs to be written. (laughs) And... My next but one book, actually, because I'm currently in the middle of two other books, but um, my next but one book, I I feel, is the one that needs to be written, which is a pan-European survey of the significance of surrounding societies and popular responses to the ongoing violence, the German and local anti-Semitic initiatives, the ways in which people were variously deported, persecuted, hidden skewed small gestures of help. I think we've got some fantastic micro studies. We've got some fantastic regional studies, both in Eastern Europe and Western Europe. I don't think they've been brought together under a wider pan-European framework. And that's what I'd really like to do when I'm done with the two books that I'm currently embroiled in.
2: What about you, Rebecca?
3: It won't surprise anyone here to, to know that I think there's still much we can
5: do with the question Of memory and how we treat memory and and stepping out. And um, I've been working for a a few years now with a group of cognitive neuropsychologists on the question of the memory of of disaster events. And I think there's an enormous amount we still might contribute as as Holocaust historians and historians of memory to thinking about what is the relationship between the individual memory of a of a disaster, in this case, a totally man-made disaster, uh, and the collect what we call collective memory. So I actually would like to see far more interdisciplinary research. I'd like to be involved in that research. I think that historians, we've been fairly slow to come to some of these memory questions to use oral sources. Certainly other scholars, psychologists, literary scholars, for example, they've been using those sources for much, much longer. I'd like to see some quite radical interdisciplinary approaches to this, and I'd like to see some practical application of it too. If I learn things in my study of child Holocaust survivors that could help child ch- you know, child refugees or children fleeing conflict in the present, then I would like that to be used. And I'd like to work with people who work with those children in the present so that if there is anything that I can contribute from my own studies of the past that is useful in the present, that it gets used.
4: Yeah, well, I come back to something Mary said a lot earlier, and I do think there's a need for further uh, detailed studies of the experience of non-Jewish victims of Nazism, not just in Germany, but in other parts of Europe, and particularly in Eastern Europe, but not not just in Eastern Europe. We really don't have enough, as I said, but there isn't a major study of homosexuals in Nazi Germany, which you think is quite extraordinary, but it it just doesn't seem to be there. There are a few works, but there isn't a, a, a large synthesis that goes into detail. And There are many other groups I think we need to to look at as well.
0: That was Professors Mary Fulbrook, Richard J. Evans and Rebecca Clifford in conversation with Rob Attar. You can find out more about the Wolfson History Prize at wolfsonhistoryprize.org.uk. And if you'd be interested in more in-depth coverage of the Holocaust then you might be interested in our upcoming online masterclass with the historian Lawrence Rees. That begins next week on Thursday the 22nd of September. You can just head to historyextra.com slash events for more details and tickets. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Brittany Colley.